I have to say, it's um, what I'm going to say is not a classic and canonical career path, and simply, as you heard from my, the introduction about my background, I graduated in China. So when I arrived in this country, I don't really think I speak much of English. It took me two hours to buy a toothpaste. So that's, uh, that's the kind of a level I had. And what I would like to um, say is, uh, is sort of something about my career path, because uh, even though it's not canonical, but maybe there are some things, uh, you know, I think uh, you find it interesting. And I guess uh, throughout my career, and I felt uh, having this optimism and persistence to be able to keep doing something you're really passionate about and has helped me quite a lot. So the picture I'm going to show you, actually I took it just about uh, two weeks ago when I was in China. And this is a very special place in China. It's a, in a sense, uh, it's almost like a, the land's end in China. And, and you can see it happens to be the moment and there was a cloud and uh, looks like uh, exactly fitting the title. Every cloud has a silver lining. And the other thing which also inspired me about that place is in Chinese we have a saying is when everything comes to a dead end, don't give up because, you know, look at this picture and it's actually pretty much looks like a dead end. We just need to turn it in the right direction. When you turn around and suddenly you see the bright future. So the Chinese I've written there is a very famous Chinese saying, and uh, I suppose I've grown up in China, so that kind of thing uh, has helped me quite a bit and throughout my times when I met difficulties. And uh, so this is part of the Athena's one things, and I think uh, when I went to collect the Athena's one award with Peter Ratcliffe, and, and one of the opening speeches that, about the Athena's one, the lady says, oh, China has a saying, woman holds half of the sky. And I thought, yeah, I've grown up in that culture. And then the left is really the propaganda picture I actually grown up as a child and then as a student. And, and so it's, the Chinese say a woman holds half of the sky. So in that sense, I think I've grown up in an unusual situation. The Chinese culture has always been, for me, is equality. So we always go to comprehensive school. Every school you go to, you get the same table, a boy and a girl, boy and a girl. We never have, like, single-sex school. And so I think uh, that was uh, the unusual part. And then in some sense, uh, you have to contribute that to the uh, new country. Before, I think, Chinese uh, society is really woman is very looked down. And, uh, and then you, we don't have a same ladies first. So in the past, I think uh, before the People's Republic of China woman has the lowest level. And in some places, there were, you know, all the men would have their dinner and women would be the last to get home to, the, to eat and whatever the leftover. So I think that certainly is one thing has changed. And I went to the place to do my master degree and then the director of my institute and, and also the hospital is the lady on the right. And then she was a woman, and the half of the institute actually are all made by female PIs. So, so just give you the background, and I did come from a culture where I think men and women are equal. 
And that's the place where I did my master degree. That was me, 1986, just before I left to come into this country. And um, so I think my career path has been unusual. And I was graduated from Master Chuan University, which probably is not the isn't like the second tier is not Oxbridge, but it may be like UCL and an imperial level. And when I applied to do a master degree, and then the man on the right, I don't think I have a... And then that's my uh, supervisor with my um, master degree. But I had no idea he was really famous. I just thought that was an interesting project, and I have a go. I applied and uh, I went through the exam and didn't hear anything for a long time. And suddenly someone told me he was really famous and I really regretted it. Why did I not look into him a bit more carefully before I applied to him? And luckily, about another two weeks later, I did get uh, an entrance acceptance. And so that was quite good. But I think actually that was a really important moment in my scientific career. And and he's... uh, he was one of the uh, most important uh, genetic, um, I think he's a geneticist in China. And um, he certainly has been working the fr- forefront of cancer research at that time. And then that took me into the oncogene field. And this is 1982. And uh, so this is many years later when I went back to v- revisit a cancer hospital um, in China. So really where I came from is called Cancer Institute in Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences. And that's really where I started my master degree. And then of course, that's where I started to have my love in cancer research. And then this was just, you know, few of my um, classmates at that time. And then some of them obviously turns out to be a lot more prominent in Chinese uh, biomedical research now. He's now the vice president of uh, Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences. And then this is my another professor in the Cancer Institute. She's still there. And these are all the other classmates. Then I came to the UK. And um, again, I think I have been lucky in that sense. And Bergen Lang happens to be my PhD supervisor. And um, she obviously is a lady. And um, my career in the UK then has been a lot more simpler. I simply just shifted lanes. So I changed from Berge Lane into David Lane to do my postdoc. And you can see three most important people in my scientific career until I have my own group. So I think, you know, reading Da Vinci Code, and I thought about my life and in my career, and then I did not realize I planned this, but there's an L in it. So as you know, I was Shinlu, and I came to London. The very first lab I actually transited, and with my fellowship in ICIF, is a person called Hartmut Land. So all I did is from land and moved to the lanes. So I went to Berge Lane and David Lane, and I started my group in the Ludwig Institute. So I haven't really left a lane. And recently, I suddenly realized I actually named my daughters Lily and Leisha. So I have two daughters, and, and so this is it. So the Ludwig Institute, some of you may know and some of you may not know, and it's an international research institution. It's really funded in 1971, and when... 
President Nixon declared war on cancer. And it's by this uh, billionaire of that time, as the richest person on earth at that time, called Daniel Ludwig. And um, we really benefited out of um, his um, generous donation. It's an endowment. So when I started my um, career, actually, London at that time had two branches. One is in St. Mary's branch, and the other one is in UCL branch. So I actually started my research career in the Ludwig Institute in St. Mary's branch. And then later on, actually, I took over the directorship in UCL, and then that's when the Ludwig started to merge, and we only had one UCL branch. And um, I think this is the old building we were in UCL, and these were the groups we had in UCL. And then, of course, by the end of 19... Well, sorry, by the end of 2006, we signed the agreement with the Oxford University, and then we moved to here to Oxford in 2007 and stopped all my London life then. So there were times, I have to say, it was really tough and uh, we did not really have any place to really have the proper lab. But luckily, um, Andrew McMichael and the people in Oxford has been really welcoming and helping. So we had a temporary lab space for a year in the whim. And and while we're waiting for the building, this is really the picture of the progression of the green building. Now you can see this is where the green building is now, but certainly when we moved, and that was really how it all looked like. And uh, with the progression, we watched it with a close interest, of course. And um, so that was really how it goes. And then, of course, over the last seven years and a half, and we have been very happy here, and... um, these are all the groups we now start to recruit and then build. And then really, the last person joined me is Sebastian. Last, uh, actually, he started this month, and we recruited from Vienna. So we have about uh, 10 groups now and, and two affiliates, and this is really our current setting. Okay, so, well, my career, again, I think there are lots of uh, changes and the, the decision is one of the ones I always have to make a choice, um, have a choose and to decide what to do. So when I really uh, started my postdoctor work with David Lang, and, and I have to say, um, perhaps we were one of the first groups really independently have also seen P53, and is a very important sensor for DNA damage. And what happened is that I was actually working on P53 in my my spare time, doing my PhD, because I always have the love um, for cancer research, even though my PhD work was on intermediate filaments. David Lane's lab was next door. P53 was just the hottest thing at that time, and it was being mutated. So I was talking to this uh, friend, um, Tim Thompson, on the phone, and he's got really a lot of very interesting cell lines, and I say, you've got to, these cells must have a mutated P53. And then he said, what's P53? I said, well, if you give it to me, I'll sequence it for you. When I sequenced my keratin mutants I was making. And anyhow, that was really how I started working on P53, and I did all my sequencing. And this is one of the unusual moments. 
Everything I sequenced is a wild type, absolutely against the dogma. I told David, I say, actually, I found P50s in cancer cells, wild type. He said, oh, no, you haven't sequenced it enough. And nowadays, if you do sequencing, you don't appreciate how difficult it was. And that's the time you have to PCR, and then you have to run the gel and the sequence at every single lane. And, and it wasn't easy, I could tell you that. Anyway, so after I graduated from Burgess, and then I decided I don't want to have a continue the work in keratin, and I want to work on cancer. So Burgess says, oh, why don't you work with David? And you worked all that with P53. So I decided, okay, that probably is not a bad idea to finish some of my spare work and during my PhD time. So I actually finished that work, and that's when we really published in cells. So basically, Sunghi and Tom, uh, Tim Thompson were the ones who gave me the cell lines, and I did all the sequencing. It was the first time we actually seen you can find a lot of wild-type P53 in cancer cells, but actually it's a wild-type, and that's pretty much against the dogma. It was during that time I saw something unusual under the microscope. The cells, when I detect a really shining P53, are the ones that have these micronuclei. Because I did my PhD in Clairehall, that's a place they do a lot of DNA damage. And, and I immediately realized this must have something to do with the damage to DNA. And of course, we were a little bit late, and my custom scooped me in the sense I had all my data ready for the second paper, and my Kasten's paper came along say P53 is induced by DNA damage. But of course, I knew I was in the right track. And then, of course, immediately a year later, I published uh, this paper with David about how P53 responds to DNA damage. And, um, well, also, this was the first time we realized P53 is a transcription factor, but actually DNA damage induced the P53 is transcriptionally active. So that was really the hype and the, the beginning of the whole P53 response and to DNA damage. And we were really the second group in the world to publish at that time. So then I had my own group. And then now is the decision time. Should I continue with what I've done with David? Or should I do something completely different? And I have to say, I took the second. I did not want to have people thinking I always just follow what David says and then to do. And even though I think all the observations come from my, the microscopes and, you know, the careful analysis, but that's really my first decision. It's difficult to know whether that's a right and wrong. But uh, the decision I took, it was really looking to, there are a lot of cancer cells with a P53 mutation, but being Chinese, we look at things as yin and yang. So if I look at P53 mutation, this is the classic mutation spectrum. And with my yin-yang map, if you look at the red, well, there's another way of asking the question. Why there are lots of tumor cells? You have wild-type P53. And um, why do they lose the tumor suppressor function? So if I understand that, and then perhaps we have a way to reactivate it. And then I have to say that's really the question we've been trying to address. I don't think we have all the answers yet. And, and so that's really the question we were trying to ask it for all those years. 
And then the issue is, can we restore the P53 function in the wild-type P53 expressing tumors? As you can see, many of them do have it. And um, one of the holy grail in the P53 field is a melanoma, because this is a really unusual tumor type. Mutation load is very high. Like all the other tumor types you would expect, it should have a lot of mutation in P53, like colon and lung. But yet in melanoma, even though the mutation load is even higher than any of these cancer types, P53 is rarely mutated. So everyone's trying to see, can we reactivate P53 in human melanoma? If we could do that, then that definitely would be something um, very exciting and something to go forward about. And that, I have to say, it took us a long time, which I'll tell you what, how long it takes. So this, when I started my group, and then there was also another very interesting, exciting discovery was, well, maybe the post-translational modification is what controls the activity of P53. And uh, phosphorylation that time was the thing. And we thought, yeah, we'll sort this out. So immediately, when I started, and I gave up the DNA damage response site, and I thought, okay, I'll go after the post-translational modification and see how can I see how P53 is regulated. I was the first group publish a very negative result about a year later after I had my own lab. And then we said, this paper, I think it was published in 95. I had my lab in 94. And basically, P53 phosphorylation really doesn't do that much because uh, we made all the mutants we could possibly think and all the tests that we could do at that time. And then the conclusion is maybe P53 phosphorylation is doing a fine-tuning things to regulate the activity of P53. So I have to say I gave up that project immediately, dumped it, and... Um, I think it, you can see by 2006, over 11, uh, 11 years later, people published all sorts of things in that field. The conclusion then was P53 phosphorylation may just have a fine-tuning effect. And with all the knockings, and this is really just the example of all of those, the phenotype has not been very strong. And um, this is a summary to say, look, there's all this modification of P53 is now because over 70,000 papers have been published on P53 by now. And so I think um, there is only one thing, though, at that time. The site we work on is a very unique site. It's this site. It is the only site which is actually phosphorylated by cycling-related kinase. All the others are all related with stress-related kinase. So I did not completely give up because when I got an opportunity, I still look into that. And I guess that's where my persistence side comes in. So we, we then, about 10 years later, we figured out that phosphorylation site has something to do with a crosstalk with a, another transcription factor called E2F1. And uh, another five years later, we finally made a knocking mouse. And that's the only knocking mouse in P53 phosphorylation site has a phenotype. So I was lucky in that sense, and then this is uh, what we concluded. So 15 years, a long journey, take us there. So the second story about the persistence is that we were 
trying to understand how P53 is regulated. And of course, everyone knows MDM2 is a really important inhibitor of P53, and it will bind P53 and target it for degradation. Of course, a lot of drug companies go after it and making inhibitors like nutlings and um, all sorts of uh, similar inhibitors. But the truth is, nutling does not completely work in all cancer types. A lot of cancer types, actually nutling doesn't work. And the issue is whether there's something else. And that really, it was that something else led us to discover this family of proteins. We named it the ASP protein, ASP. And initially, it's like the name of the snake, Cleopatra used to commit suicide. And that was really how we got the name, because it has anchor and repeat SH3 domain and proline rich containing protein. So, so we thought, that's it. That's the good name for it, because it also promotes P53-induced apoptosis. But then it turns out that you go to the computer, and there are loads of uh, ASP similar things. And we have to add another P in the end and then there's nothing comes up. So that's really how the ASP names comes from. We go to two Ps, containing proteins. There are three members in this family, and then we do think of the IASP as inhibitor, where the ASP1 and 2 are the activators. It controls the activity of P53 and the family proteins, and it controls the tissue homeostasis. And this is really how it looks like. And um, so... It is one of, again, it's one of those uh, twisted stories. People solved the co-crystal structure, it wasn't me, by Nikola Pavlovich in 1996. But it took us another um, five years to figure out what that interaction means. And that's when we really identified uh, the Asper 2 and then the family, because this initial fragment was only a really small part of the whole molecule. And uh, in the initial crystal structure, we would think of that inhibitor of P53, but when you clone the whole thing, actually works as an activator. Until today, I have to tell you, I don't know biochemically how does it activate the transcriptional activity of P53, and I also don't know why it can make P53 makes a selective choice, only selectively regulate a set of targets, not the others. So this is certainly something we will continue to work, and I think it's a fundamental question my lab will still be interested in, is how a transcription factor makes a selective choice to um, look into, activate, or repress certain sets of targets and not the others. And in this case, it selectively regulates apoptosis and cell death and not the cell cycle related. And... Um, by 2003, we actually identified the inhibitory form of this family of proteins. We named it IASP, it's inhibitory of ASP. And um, I have to say, it took us a long time to really get this knowledge and to address the question I told you, which is another 10 years later. And this is really the paper we published last year. And it took us 10 years to really show in human melanoma, and uh, the IAS protein is another site of the inhibitor for P53 in addition to MDM2. And this is the reason why P53 is not functional in human melanoma. And also took us about 10 years to find a way 
to reactivate P53 activity in human melanoma by using the two small compounds. One is a nutling and the other is a J and J compound to disarm, to inactivate both inhibitory arms and then to activate um, P53. And using this as a parallel approach as the targeting BRAF as approach to really to try to suppress the cell growth of uh, melanoma cancers. We have been working using molecules as a molecular probe to allow us to really understand some fundamental biology. And I think, it, again, it's another story. It took us a long time and to try to understand how a molecule can go into the nucleus. So, so the AS proteins, where I'm mentioned here, by understanding how does it get inactivated, um, how, sorry, how does it inactivate P53 in human melanomas, it led us to understand really the essence of that is a location. Location of the molecule dictates whether it can inhibit P53 or not. If it gets into the nucleus, sorry, if it gets into the nucleus, it can inhibit P53. If it's in the cytoplasm, it doesn't. And it was really trying to understand how does the molecule get in and out of the nucleus and cytoplasm and finally led us to discover this um, pathway. We named it radar pathway, and this is really just published this year, which we think we identified a novel nuclear import pathway, and which is able to um, control a large group of proteins to either go into the nucleus or not. Because if the anchor repeats containing a code in the anchor repeats, which allows it to bind a RANG DP, and it will use this naturally occurring cycle to go into the nucleus and then to get shuttled in. Normally, there's a one pathway for the protein to go into the nucleus, and that's called the NOS importing pathway. Um, but now this is the novel additional pathway, which allows a lot of protein goes into the nucleus. So I suppose, really, what I'm trying to show you is a lot of things we've been doing. It took a long time. A lot of times we thought, really, we met the dead end. But I think the only way really kept us going was really have the optimism and uh, persistent uh, in looking into things and eventually we're getting somewhere. And, and so that's really the end. And, and these are all the people in my lab now. Of course, there are lots and lots of people in the past and I haven't got all the pictures for them. And um, that's it. We need to, I need to thank all of them. And Zineda is here in the lab and uh, need to thank uh, Mr. Ludwig who gave us all the money to be able to continue to work all those years. Thank you. <laughs>